Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Hello, Dr. Erica Roblin to the Prying Priest Podcast. Hello, Father Yuri. You, you are the first medical doctor I have on the podcast. Act, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have. Yes. First medical doctor I have on, on, on the podcast. Yes. Well, um, I'm honored and privileged. Yes. No, I, I am honored and privileged. Uh, I first met you a while back when it was discovered that Manisha, my sister-in-law, actually knew you. Uh, and I can't exactly remember the nature of that relationship, but maybe you could remind me. Yeah, were you, Manisha, kind of su- su- were you a supervisor or something like that? Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, Manisha was doing her residency in family medicine at McMaster Family Practice, and I was locuming, so I was in a supervisor position for her. Mm-hmm. And somehow we finally made the connection that she was Orthodox and I was Orthodox, and yeah, it kind of went from there. Yeah, yeah. But you, you weren't always Orthodox. You, you came into orthodoxy from, I, I don't actually know your story at all, even though we've known each other for three, four years now. So, Oh, really? Um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, at that stage, like when I met Manisha, I was quite recently orthodox. Or maybe I was actually probably a catechumen at that point. Yeah, it was I right remember, around that stage. I remember meeting you at least in very quick passing mm-hmm. at All Saints when I had visited there one time. Yes, I remember yeah. meeting you too in the basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we Probably, met there. Probably, yes. Because that's where I met Dan Opperwall. Yeah. And that's where I met Greg Weeb. Oh, who, sure. Yeah. Who, uh, who I interviewed a couple of days ago and will be released a couple of weeks before your interview. Oh, very nice. Um, yeah. So worlds are, worlds colliding on this podcast. It's a small world in Hamilton. Yeah. In yeah. orthodoxy. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I'm fascinated to have this conversation for a couple of reasons to learn more about you because I don't actually know too much about you, though we interact on a regular basis. Um, but also maybe perhaps later on in the Patreon half to talk about um, issues of being, uh, let's say, a faithful Christian within the the medical field and some of the mm-hmm. changing um, uh, standards and perhaps morals and ethics uh, relative to being a medical doctor. I think that'll be a bit of a fun conversation to have. There are lots of hot button issues. Uh, to mm-hmm. talk about so fun yeah that's yeah. the word yeah the fun is the right word <laughs> i felt okay let me tell you a story to start uh-huh. this you Go know this it. is your time but uh, but uh the, the first class i ever took at the trinity or orthodox for my for my um master's degree was uh a medieval theology course taught by dan operwall who is a mutual friend of ours mm-hmm. and He's, he went around the room in the first class and said, why are you like, just why are you, why do you, why should you study theology? Or like, why do you want to study theology? And I go first, cause I'm the kind of guy that's like, oh, I want to set the standard and then everyone can, you know, cause everyone waits for that one person to go first so that they know how they're supposed to answer. So I like to be the one that goes first. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? It's just, it's fun. 
<laughs> it's fun. It's just a really, it's really fun. And then the next person goes and they're like, because it's the deepest questions about our existence <laughs> and that, that I, and I'm like, man, I look like an idiot now. <laughs> no, your um, answer probably was, yeah, the better one. That's a better reason to do it. I think most theologians do theology, not because they actually care about their own Christian journey, but because it's fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They find it intellectually stimulating. Yeah, I think that's um, true. Anyways, back to you, Erica. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, I, I know your dad is a pastor. So did you mm -hmm. grow up already within uh, a Christian household or did your dad sort of, or did that happen after, you know, you were in the picture? Yeah. Um, so I did grow up in a Christian household. Um, interestingly, my parents came to Christianity and converted sort of together um, as a couple after they were already married in their early 20s, but before they had children. Um, so by the time I came along, my dad had already made this um, sort of dramatic vocational shift. He'd been a forester. He did his master's in forestry, was working for the Ministry of the Environment um, and felt this very strong calling suddenly, kind of post-conversion, uh, to work full-time in ministry, in the church, um, and to be a pastor. So all that to say, I did grow up as a PK, as we call it, and um, within within a Christian Protestant church. Um, this was in Oakville. It's called Chartwell Baptist Church. It was Baptist, I'd say, mostly by name. Um, I don't think many of the people who attended that church would have really called themselves Baptists. I don't think my parents would call themselves Baptists. Um, so it sort of had a somewhat left-leaning non-denominational community church sort of feel, I would say, probably describes it the best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And was Christianity or going to church something that came naturally to you, or was there a combative, <laughs> I don't want to go to church on a Sunday morning, uh, the Sunday morning fight, as I call it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I was sort of the prototypical first child. Um, <laughs> so there weren't, there wasn't a lot of combating about anything. Um, yeah, no, I think church going and life in church felt quite natural to me. I mean, I think it was just impossibly impossible for me to imagine life and family life outside of that. That was such a huge part of our, our family's lives and upbringing. Um, for most of my childhood growing up, my mom didn't work really outside of the house. Um, however, was, you know, very involved in church functions and leadership and everything at the church as well. So that, you know, when I think about my childhood, that was sort of the, the center point of it was life at church and the people at our church were our social connections. PKs as in pastor's kids or in Orthodox, mm -hmm. we say priest kids, but uh, same thing. Do we... Uh, uh, we tend to be the craziest people. Um, I, I, you know, the, the, there's something about being a PK that, that seems to make those kids rebel or, or something like that. Right. I've known many PKs. Some of them tend to be normal people. Uh, some of them tend to rebel a lot. And, uh, you seem like a normal person to me. <laughs> Were you always <laughs> a normal PK or was there, uh, some crazy rebellion at some point? I mean, yeah, I think I was a normal PK. I mean, the height of my rebellion was probably my eyebrow piercing in high school, mm. which 
But, you know, even that I didn't do until I got my parents' explicit permission, which took years, by the way, of wearing them down. But by age 16, I'd convinced them. So, you know, my my rebellions were um, were pretty firmly within the confines of, you know, mm-hmm. disclosing things to my parents and all that. So, no, I don't think. Oh, the other part was um, a Blink-182 CD, Enema of the State. I was not allowed to have that. And I bought it and I oh. hid it under my bed. That was a bad one. Yeah. That, oh, you can't have that demon music. <laughs> yeah, I know. Not in our house. So, um, no, I, I think that I, you know, church was always part of my life. My faith continued to be part of my life, even as I grappled with it in different ways and, and figuring out where I fit within the Christian church. Um, and those questions, I think, first arose for me really in high school, probably as, you know, the time when we're wrestling with our identity and, and forming that identity of our own apart from our families. Um, that very much was true for me, but I, I never came to a point where I pictured myself, you know, outside of the church completely mm-hmm. or outside mm-hmm. of my family's kind of norms and values either. Mm-hmm. One thing that I was exposed to much later than lots of my friends who are Protestant Christians is this whole Christian subgenre of anything you can imagine, right? So you had like the <laughs> Christian rock, you had the Christian movies, you had all, all this stuff, the Christian contemporary music. Um, I didn't grow up with any of that. I, I grew up, my brother liked Led Zeppelin and Rage Against the Machine. And like, I, I my favorite band was Dream Theater, which is a prog metal band. Count um, your blessings. But then like when I was exposed to it, some of it, I was like, this is really great. Uh, But some of it was, was really bad. But uh, did you probably were much more exposed to that than I was then in, in youth? Oh yeah. That was, I was seeped in that. And, and I think, you know, for my parents and, and their peers and, and their kind of generation, I think there was a lot of fear, um, about exposing their children to the the evils of this world or whatever. Um, And I think they felt a lot of safety and comfort in in limiting our exposures in these various ways. So Christian music, for sure, was a thing that was pushed a lot by by my church and youth group and parents and all of that. Um, uh, Yeah. If I think back, I mean, that's probably some of the stuff I pushed against the most. Although, I mean, I, I found the bands that I liked there, too. Um, there are some really good, good that I still listen to. Right. I mean, you know, if I went back, I'd probably think like, yeah, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I listened to, you know, five iron frenzy, Reliant K. Those were great bands. <laughs> hey, I still listen to Reliant K. So yeah, I was just stuff. playing a Reliant K song on my guitar earlier before this interview. So, Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. No, some of the stuff holds up. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. One of the other bands that I really like is Emery. Oh, they're I remember like, them. Yeah, but they're definitely. more like a hardcore kind of mm-hmm. kind of band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I I would I did not understand that world when I was first exposed to it. E- even some English Christmas carols I didn't even know about um, until I was a teenager. And mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, uh, okay. So you're you're growing up. You have at least one sister that I know mm-hmm. of. One sister you- that I know of. Okay, <laughs> so that's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yeah, what what was when was the first time you experienced questions of faith or people of different kinds of faith that that really challenged you? Um, to, was there ever moments of 
oh, like this other religious experience seems very attractive to me. Um, or mm -hmm. uh, this person made a claim against my own faith and I'm like really angry about it or, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I was somewhat sheltered from that for sure growing up as I was, you know, I went to um, a private Christian elementary school, Christian high school. Um, so, you know, real encounters and real dialogues with people from other faiths didn't really happen in my youth in that way. Um, and then I think, you know, my first year after high school, I went to a school called Augustine College in Ottawa. And it's a non-denominational liberal arts Christian college, kind of a one-year foundational program, um, sort of a one-year take on a like, classical education, great texts kind of curriculum. Um, and it was there, actually, that I was really first exposed to the wider Christian world, even. So I feel like that was my first widening or broadening of my lens of faith. Like, I was pretty closely confined, I think, in that Protestant evangelical world. Um, which felt like a big world at that time, like everywhere we went and everywhere our family traveled, we would meet people from that type of church. Um, but then yes, during this college experience in Ottawa, being more exposed to people from other Protestant churches, mainline churches, people of Catholic faith, Eastern Catholic faith. At this point, I hadn't really still encountered anyone of Orthodox faith, but the the Eastern Catholics were the closest, I guess, that I got or closest liturgically. Um, and so that really opened my eyes to a wider Christian world. And then it was after that that I went to McMaster University. Um, and I think, you know, I don't I don't remember it feeling like my mind was blown open or something like I, I think I was always aware of people of other faiths, but it was there that I really formed friendships with people of Jewish faith, Muslim faith. You know, those were some of my closest friends, I guess, um, in undergrad at that time, but also people from other backgrounds too, Baha'i, Hindi, all of that. Um, I think that, you know, the despite what we hear about maybe sometimes in the Christian world, my experience of that was very much, um, it was a place of open dialogue and, and very respectful dialogue to people of all faiths. Um, and I didn't feel, I didn't feel like there was a lot of conflict that happened because of our different faiths, but I think we were all feeling mutually informed by each other as our world sort of opened to one another at the ages of 18, 19. It was really exciting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And were you always, did you always consider yourself well within the Christian camp or were there times, you know, people, you know, that it's like a stereotypical people go to university and lose their faith and then, you know, find it again after they have kids and then, you know, they, they go to church for the kids or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you always consider yourself kind of firmly within that Christian circle? Yeah, I don't think my identity ever felt like it could have been placed anywhere outside of that. Um, it has always felt, I've sometimes described it as, you know, these are just the glasses through which I can see the world. And I can't imagine having those glasses removed, <laughs> even if I wanted to. Um, and maybe at times I have wanted to, but it's just, 
yeah, it's sort of like, this is the, this is the lens that's on my eyeballs. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to understand this world and human experience outside of that framework. So I think that that always felt like a pretty mm. core piece of me, even if I didn't know exactly where within that Christian church or Christian tradition, I would find myself. And that was my experience for most of the university was kind of feeling a bit adrift within the Christian church and not knowing where I was going to land. So a lot of, so most of my closest friends are all various types of Protestant Christians. And in my generation, in my age group, the two big inheritances from this evangelical Christian movement was this sort of, uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier, this alternative Christian culture, right? That anything that you could get in the secular world, you can get the Christian version of it, right? Uh, oh, you you like metal music? Well, listen to this Christian metal music. Oh, you like, now now they even have like the Christian Netflix sort of alternative, <laughs> okay, uh, where, yeah. you, where it's all Christian uh, produced movies and, and things like that. So so basically a replacement culture, Um so th that's one that's one aspect of this evangelical thing that in my generation the people inherited. The other one um, is also uh, purity culture. So a, a lot of kind of rules around uh, sexual ethics or or all of that kind of stuff, and um, trying to focus on being pure. And I'm not exactly sure where that came from historically, but it's mm -hmm. something that really influenced people um, of of sort of my age group and everything like that. I'm wondering. It might. I, I'd be interested in a conversation now, maybe about some of the good things that came from this, you know, these Christian groups or whatever, or purity culture or this evangelical movement that you grew up in. But I'd also be interested in talking about maybe some of the negatives um, that came out of some of these movements as well. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we could start with the positives. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm not sure if anything comes to your mind right away, um, but like for, for me, like. Uh, just some, there are some Christian bands out there that I think are actually honestly really great and have good theology and good music and it's beautiful to listen to, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think, you know, maybe 95% of it's bad. There are some of those, uh, some of those uh, good things out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess looking back, I think I can be grateful for some of those sort of Christian replacements that I was exposed to, perhaps in place of whatever secular or worldly or <laughs> what have you equivalent. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the messaging and programming that is directed towards young girls, young teenagers um, is really toxic. And I'm sure it's more so now. I mean, I'm much more disconnected from, from that sort of thing now. Um, but I think having, you know, sort of Christian versions of, teen magazines or whatever it was, which I had those things, right? Um, I mean, I can't, I don't think I could say those are bad things, right? That I, I wasn't as exposed to, to some of that other stuff. Um, that being said, I mean, it's not like you can build an impermeable wall for your children. I mean, obviously those messages from the wider culture were still you know, still got in and we're still absorbed. And so concerns about body image, concerns about weight, dieting, like, you know, those are big narratives in my mind, right? And, and big um, problematics as like a young, as a girl, as a young teenager, 
Um, and I, so I don't think, you know, that wasn't different than the rest of the world. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm answering mm-hmm. your question. That was one of the things I thought of the music piece. Again, I mean, you know, looking back, Christian music, non-Christian music, the stuff I listened to when I was younger at that stage of my life, you know, there's probably not a lot of it I would go back to in either realm, which is fine. Um, But I think that, you know, feeling a sense of, there was certainly a sense of community within, you know, fans of those bands, for instance, or there was a sense of being on the in, right? Like, oh, you read Relevant Magazine. Oh, so do I. (laughs) You know, there's those pieces of that very specific Christian culture, like any subculture where it feels good to feel like you're on the inside and, and have a community of people interested in those things. Was it better to be in that that subculture than another one? I, I mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a maxim that says, um, don't prepare the road for the child, prepare the child for the road. Right. And, and I think what happened with a lot of these Christian movements is these Christian churches tried to prepare the road for their believers, try to move everything out of their way. So they never had to face the mm-hmm. kind of the real world, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that in general, that's a mistaken approach, e- even if some good things did come out of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And I think that, you know, thinking that, you know, any child, I guess, (laughs) no matter what background you're from, whether you're, you know, outside of the church or outside of any faith tradition, everyone wants to protect their children from the darkness and the terror that is in our world, right? Um, And so I think we all take our different approaches. So I guess, you know, I think I've had times of being more critical of that Christian subculture for doing that. I think we all do that to some degree. Um, at the same time, I think that, you know, even within that Protestant world, I think I did see a bit of a pendulum swing, even maybe in my late teens, where there was more of an emphasis or people started talking more about like, well, instead of making Christian music, let's be Christian musicians, <laughs> you know, or instead of, I don't know, making a Christian school, let's like be Christians in whatever school we're in. Like just kind of reframing um, mm. to put the uh, the Christian identity onto the person, onto the believer rather than the, the product. product. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's change gears a little bit here. What What was prayer like for you growing up? Mm-hmm. Prayer was, so it was something that was done routinely. Um, I remember, you know, I thought of like nighttime prayers or prayers before bed, even as a child. Um, Prayers were mostly private. So they were things that were done on your own between you and God. They were improvised. So it wasn't something that you would read or something that you were taught uh, to recite or to memorize, it would just be you know, spontaneous thoughts, really. And so it was all internal. It was all in my head, thoughts in my head. Um, and so, and that's what it felt like, <laughs> thoughts, um, you know, sort of clambering around in your brain. 
it was mostly petitions. I mean, there was some like emphasis on thankfulness too, like thanking God for the good things in your life. Um, but I, I remember at least from what I recall, a lot of the emphasis being on petition. So asking God for certain things. And then there was also this sense that, you know, if you were praying right, if you were praying correctly with enough faith, you should get those things. (laughs) Those things should happen. Those things should come to be. Um, And I think that that was one of the things that really kind of took the floor out from under me at a certain point when, you know, I prayed hard (laughs) and I, I thought I was praying with a lot of faith and a lot of conviction and, you know, a man in our church wasn't healed. He died from ALS. Right. And, and the whole church had prayed with real faith and real conviction and was really, it felt to me expecting him to be healed and he wasn't. And so what does that do? So I think that's where, You didn't ask me this exactly, but that's where the problematics of of that type of prayer came to me to feel really, really important and really like urgent to address because it really, I think it had the effect of calling people's faith into question, right? Yeah. When, when you're praying for the healing of someone and it doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. the only thing you can ask is, well, what went wrong? Yeah. What did I do wrong? I must not have had the pureness of faith or the strength of faith that I thought I had because it didn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then when you were going into university, I, I guess let's maybe talk about your desire to be a doctor. Was that something that you wanted to do from the beginning or was it something that you discovered about yourself, you know, through, through high school and university? Yeah, it was sort of a a sort of circular process of discovery, I guess. You know, I think I had the common experience as a high school student with pretty good grades, you know, doing well in the sciences, your teachers, your parents tell you, oh, you should be a doctor. So, you know, I think it was a little bit in my mind, but I was drawn to, you know, I was drawn to classical education. I made my parents hire me a Latin tutor in high school. Like I was a bit weird. (laughs) That's awesome. And then, you know, I went to this classical school for a year of, of that kind of education. And, um, and my undergrad was in the arts and science program at McMaster, which is this interdisciplinary program, you know, focused on a, a more rounded education, I suppose. Um, and I was even within that drawn to the humanities, drawn to literature, drawn to philosophy. So that's where I found myself focusing throughout my undergrad and I ended up doing a double major with that as well as English and cultural studies. So that's where my focus really was. So during that time, medicine wasn't really on my mind. Um, I had taken one course in first year with the science faculty at McMaster and it was first year chemistry. It was like 900 people in this giant lecture hall. I hated it. I just hated it. It's like, well, that's it. Like if there had been any thought of medicine, I thought at that point it was out of the question because I would not endure another course like that. And I thought that's what you needed to do to be a doctor. It was later in my undergrad that I realized that McMaster's medical school will accept students from any undergrad background and you don't actually need any of the science prereqs that some other medical schools require. So 
you know, towards the end of my undergrad, as much as I loved the humanities, I, I started to question if I could find a meaningful vocation within that. I think, you know, the politics of academia were starting to become a little bit more apparent to me. Um, and picturing a life within that was becoming harder. So I threw off an application to McMaster's medical school, not really thinking much would happen. Um, cause I hadn't, you know, been planning for this for my whole undergrad career, which a lot of people do right to, to pursue medicine. Um, so when that one application was accepted, it seemed like something I, I couldn't turn down. Although I still questioned it. I was quite ambivalent about mm-hmm. it at the time. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever have, I, I remember having a conversation with you when I was ordained. I think I, I was perhaps ordained a deacon. Actually, maybe I wasn't even ordained at that point, but I was expressing the idea of being uncomfortable with people calling me father. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, father, you're it just it, yeah, it feels uncomfortable and 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 everything. And you shared a little bit about at first not we not wanting to be called doctor, mm-hmm. right? Or feeling sort of a little bit of like fraud or or whatever, right? You don't feel up to the name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like do you want to speak a little bit to to that? And maybe you know how long did it take to sort of. Be, to be able to feel like you really are a doctor, mm-hmm. right? Maybe, maybe that hasn't happened yet. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, I remember that so vividly. And I, you know, I think this is a common experience amongst many medical students moving into this profession and, and other people in other vocations and other roles moving into to different sorts of professions. But so I remember the first couple of weeks of residency, um, you know, I would go into the room with the patient and I'd introduce myself. And so, you know, I, I had just gotten my MD. I was a doctor, but it was so new and it was so fresh and it didn't feel like it fit me quite yet. And I didn't, I think part of it was like, I didn't quite feel deserving of the title. Like I, you know, do I really have to ask people to call me this? Like, I don't think I'm worthy of it. So I'd go in and say, Oh, hello, my name's Erica Roblin. I'm a first year resident, which is, you know, medical code for the fact that I'm a doctor, but of course not everyone would understand that. And so my supervisor who was watching me gave me this very firm feedback in the first week. She said, Erica, you need to go in and introduce yourself as Dr. Roble. And that's who you are. And it's actually going to be more helpful for patients to understand who you are than you kind of couching it in, in whatever you think makes you more comfortable. Um, that's not helping your patients or helping anyone, you know, in their role as a patient with you as a provider. So but it still was uncomfortable. Like it still took me a little while to settle into it. Um, and then I had this experience. It was my first rotation of residency was on the um, obstetrics ward. So doing labor and delivery, delivering babies. And it was an overnight shift near the end of my rotation. And the staff physician and the senior resident were both caught up in an emergency C-section. So they were very occupied. And there was a woman on the floor of labor and delivery going into labor. So the nurses said, like, doctor, (laughs) like, we need a doctor. So I ran to the OR. They were, like, in the middle of the surgery. I was like, okay, it's just me. So I go back, get my gloves on, deliver this baby. Thank God, you know, everything went smoothly. Healthy baby, healthy delivery. Um, 
And then a little bit later, I heard the father talking on the phone, presumably to a family member. And I was like, yes, everything went really well. The nursing student delivered the baby. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, like, you know, not that there's any shame in being a nursing student, but like the hospital would not be OK with a nursing student delivering the baby. Um, and so they, you know, again, I think as a as a young woman, a woman of shorter stature, a woman who maybe looks younger, you know, this is the assumption, right? Um, there's never going to be an assumption that you're the physician in the room. So that experience really made me think like, okay, I've got to be better at introducing myself because people clearly don't know who I am. And because of the fact that I'm a woman, no one's ever going to assume that I'm the doctor. So that's what shifted it for me. And, and since then, you know, certainly at this point, I, I feel quite comfortable and it comes quite naturally. Um, I have some patients who call me Dr. Erica, which feels a little more familiar um, and just a little more close. The patients that I see through the Shelter Health Network, that's that's what they know me as. And I really like that. Um, I think it still, it says who I am and, and my relationship to them in that setting. Um, but it feels a little bit less formal, which I think for some people just helps. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about being let's say like a woman in the medical field, but you're also involved from your youngest days in the church as well. And, and, you know, being a woman in the church, we, we've gone through one of the most ground shifting times in history, um, not just in the church, but in, in society on the empowerment of women and, and various waves of feminism. I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit on that earlier part of your life, right? Uh, growing up uh, as a, as a young woman in an evangelical church and, and, what perhaps what opportunities were you given or maybe what opportunities you weren't given or what were some of the expectations involved there? And, and did you feel, um, did you feel fine and kind of empowered in that, in that, in, at that time in your life or, or maybe, uh, or, or maybe not. I was wondering if you'd just speak a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question and I feel like there's sort of a, maybe like a predicted answer that like I felt oppressed in different ways and held back. But I can't say that that was my experience. Like it really wasn't. Um, I think that our church was quite forward thinking in those matters. Um, The, I think we almost, I think the church got, if not kicked out, at least reprimanded from the denomination because we had female pastors, we had women in leadership, we had women preaching, you know, all that kind of stuff was just status quo at the parish that I grew up in. Um, And also, you know, I'm sure this contributed to this is sort of just happenstance and total chance, but my kind of cohort, and you know, when you're young, like your grade really matters, like you're the 87s or whatever year you were born in. Um, and even a year or two older or younger seems like another world. Anyways, my little cohort at our church, it was almost all girls. It was almost all women. And so we were sort of this posse together. And I felt like we didn't have a lot of males in our cohort that we would be compared to, or that they honestly just didn't factor in a whole lot I think, to my growing up. I kind of had this little female world and and we had um, a female youth pastor in high school. We had women mentors for us in our youth group. A lot of my teachers were women. So I think 
you know, I had a lot of role models to look up to of very strong-minded, independent women. Um, and that was certainly something that was always encouraged and I guess just never really questioned. I think in some ways, I maybe I was also sheltered from what the experience is for a lot of women in the Christian church, right? Um, of feeling more, you know, you know, mouth shut or, or not teaching or, or asked to be quiet in, in different types of ways. Um, I think, yeah, I was somewhat sheltered from that growing up. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could uh, move a little bit further into your first experiences of like Orthodox Christianity and maybe taking some of it seriously. And, and uh, yeah, what, what was your first, uh, do you have any memories of your first uh, encounter with Orthodoxy or maybe a first like major experience of it? Yeah, well, I think to really trace it back, I think I'd have to to count my first experience at a Ukrainian Catholic Vesper service. Because sort of liturgically, that was my first taste of like, what does this kind of experience of Christianity look like, sound like, smell like, you know, that kind of a sense of it. And that was when I was at Augustine College. So that's when I was 17. So I was quite young. Um, but then that was kind of a one-off thing. There was, you know, one family attached to the college who attended this church. And, and then I continued to hear about these people. And I knew some people who actually converted into that tradition. So that was sort of on my radar. But at this stage, I didn't know anyone who was Orthodox. And I had never been to an Orthodox church. And so I wish I had a better way of explaining how I came to start reading about orthodoxy because my first encounter was through books um I guess so through undergrad and then medical school I was mostly attending um a Presbyterian church in Hamilton um a really beautiful lovely small congregation very contemplative thoughtful mostly older people <laughs> I was probably the youngest the youngest person there um, but really beautiful music and poetry and, and different things that were brought into the service. A lot of artists and, and people that were part of that, that group. Um, so that's where I was for a time. And it certainly felt like a safe haven for me, but I, I think I came to a stage where I didn't know that I felt, I didn't know that I felt like I would be challenged or that I would be, um, have the experience of growing or progressing in my faith in that space for too much longer. So then I was in medical school um, and I remember quite distinctly. So I had quite a few Muslim classmates and friends in medical school um, who I really looked up to in a lot of ways. I think I found that they were living lives of faith that were countercultural to our mainstream culture in a way that felt really significant and actually really beautiful to me. Um, uh, they were people of such integrity in their work and in their commitment to medicine and their patients. And anyways, I just really looked up to them. And I think I, I started having this sense that I wanted to seek out a Christian tradition that felt more tangible in my day-to-day -day life, where I would feel a sense of, you know, it's not January 7th, it's the day after Theophany or, you know, just that my, my, 
whole daily routine would feel a little bit different because I'd have other practices that would shape my days. I remember feeling drawn to that. And so I started reading about orthodoxy and then I started listening to podcasts. I listened to a lot of ancient faith radio that year. Um, Whenever I wasn't listening to medicine podcasts, I was listening to orthodoxy (laughs) podcasts. Mm -hmm. And after about a year of that, I, um, okay, no. So at some point I did attend an Orthodox service with a friend of mine who she herself is not Orthodox, but had been attending an Orthodox church in Ottawa. So I was in Ottawa visiting her and I went to church with her. So I'd had this one day, one service at, um, Christ the savior in Ottawa. So after about a year of reading, listening to podcasts and, you know, everything you read is that, you know, this is a this is a tradition that you can't just read about. You have to experience, right? So I'm reading this week after week, and I think, okay, I guess I actually have to show up to a service. But it felt quite intimidating to me not knowing anyone who was Orthodox and not having any personal connections that I could reach out to in Hamilton. So I emailed the priest of that church I had gone to one day in Ottawa, and I kind of told him who I was. You know, I'm this English speaker. I'm a Protestant. I'm in Hamilton what should I do? Like, where should I go? Is there a church I could show up to? And that would be okay. Like, I I just didn't know. Um, So he pointed me to the English speaking OCA church in Hamilton, All Saints. Um, And so I think the next Sunday I showed up there, I was probably the first person there. (laughs) Because I was very on time, like a Protestant. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I'd been a regular attending member of this Presbyterian church up until then. And, and that Sunday when I went to the Orthodox church, I just thought it would be a visit. You know, I'd, I I had no thought that that would be where I ended up. Um, but that was it. I mean, I, I never went back to the other church. Like every Sunday after that, I was, I was there for liturgy. Huh. Um, so it kind of felt like a done deal by that point. Yeah. 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 So we're getting close to the end of the public episode here. Um, where, when we get into the Patreon half, just giving the listeners a little tease here. Uh, again, we're going to be talking a little bit about this, um, being a doctor who is a practicing Orthodox Christian and how do you navigate certain changing morals. Um, specifically, I think it'd be interesting to talk about um, like the change in the Canadian laws regarding like physician-assisted suicide and things like that. Um, and how, 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 as a doctor, do you navigate those issues? Right. I I think as a lot of Orthodox or Christian people navigate them in a theological kind of way. But I think if you're actually a doctor who's maybe sitting at the sides of the bed or standing at the sides of the bed or pronouncing people dead, you know, um, there, you would approach it differently. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to kind of enter into conversation there with you. So if you want to hear that conversation, uh, go to primepriest.com slash support and become a patron and you'll get access to not only this one, but all of the previous um, uh, extended interviews. But to end the public episode, Erica, I was wondering, your ba- when, you were, when you were baptized into the Orthodox Church, you took on, it's, it's, common for people to take on a patron saint and you took on the saint um saint maria of paris Mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit of the reason why you chose this particular saint for yourself when you when you came to the church sure yeah um 
I was pretty intrigued with St. Maria as, as soon as I sort of first heard about her, first started reading about her. Um, she's a rad lady. <laughs> she uh, worked, um, well, I guess, how to sum up her life? There are so many aspects of her, right? She was such an interesting and, and complicated woman in a lot of ways. And and she's maybe not the the prototypical image of a saint that we think of. I mean, she was a woman of the world in a lot of different ways. Um, and that is where she embodied her love for Christ and, and her love for the people around her. Um, I think that part of what drew me to her was this idea of being a sort of like an urban monastic. So having this role as, as a, as a nun, um, but being committed to doing that very much in the world. So not in the seclusion of a cloister or a monastery, um, but to be doing that amongst the people. Uh, and she had this incredible commitment to hospitality, which really, which resonated with me. I mean, I think that's a thing that, um, has been a big part of my life, especially in the last few years. Um, my friend and I own a large house, old house in Hamilton. And of course, COVID has changed this so much this past year, but our vision for the house was for it to be this place of warmth and hospitality and place where we could bring people in and, and even house people in need at times, which, which the house has been at different points along the way. Um, and so I felt like that, you know, St. Maria embodied all those things to to such an amazing degree um her commitment to work with the poor to serve the refugees amongst her um people being oppressed by the political regime that she was that she was under um all these things were pretty i don't know just really incredible um, so I don't know. I would say everyone should just go read about St. Maria of Paris. I can't tell you everything about her life, but she's, uh, she's pretty cool. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?